are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. All right, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Page 46 in your fancy pants journals. We're going to be reading uh, from verses uh, 4 through 25 tonight, uh, a, good, a good chunk of this chapter. So read with me, if you would, starting in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was, said, was being said by Philip. And when, uh, and <laughs> when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for the unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. And when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. 
Last week, we took a good look at the cruciformed shape of the life of the church, and we, of course, saw this in the life and in the death of Stephen. His death was eerily similar to that of our Savior, and we recognized pretty quick that his life would end in the very similar way that Jesus's would end. And even as we sang tonight, uh, we can realize that the same way that Jesus uh, died is a shape or, or some level of a uh, pattern of the way that we as Christians will be treated even in this world. And the church itself uh, garnered a very similar cross-shaped reputation as they were persecuted and then scattered, yet successful, much like the work of our Savior as well. So we took a good bit last week to discuss what it looks like uh, to have our life shaped by the gospel in this way, a life that is shaped by hardship but is formed in the, in the crucible of suffering and yet comes out shining like gold. Uh, it is no, no less of a resurrection kind of living and uh, resurrection experience even amongst the face of death, or I should say even especially in the face of death and hardship. And so tonight we get a little bit of a clear glimpse as to this ongoing drama of God's unfolding grace in the work of the church. And tonight we get to see a little bit of the success. We get to uh, see a little bit of the good news, kind of the shining gold uh, out of the cross-shaped life of the church. So when the church is persecuted and then scattered, now is the time where we actually get to see some of the good fruit that is a result of the gospel spreading. And so tonight we get to take a good look at the scope of God's grace here throughout this whole chapter. Really, uh, even the portions of, of chapter 8 that we haven't read could, could give us a, a good uh, glimpse at the scope of God's grace. How far does God's grace go? Even in the middle of suffering, even in the middle of death, taking this cruciformed shape, how far does God's grace go? Go And we see this uh, right on display within this story here. Uh, actually, there's kind of two stories within our, our passage tonight, uh, and then certainly our passage next week. Uh, but we'll take a look. We'll take a look from verses 4 to, to 8 real quick. Uh, we get, a, we get a, a little glimpse. Luke gives us a very small glimpse into the scope of God's grace. Uh, the first thing that we're really able to see right out of the gate is that the scope of God's grace is for all. It's absolutely for all people. Uh, there in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And of course, if you remember uh, from, from chapter 1, we've been talking about it for a little while, that this persecution was actually the, the means by which God would fulfill his promise to the apostles that they would, in fact, be his witnesses uh, to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. They didn't know how they were going to get that work done. And God said, I will scatter you in light of this persecution. And lo and behold, you will find yourself fulfilling the promise that I made to you. And what we begin to see is that this gospel isn't just for those who fit the bill. This gospel isn't for those who would be ordinary church type people. This would be a very hard pill to swallow for the Jews to know that the gospel of their Messiah, whether they believed in him or not, was being taken to those of the ilk of Samaria. As John says it best in John 4, 9, if you remember the story of Jesus interacting a little bit with the Samaritans, John gives us this little note about the ministry of Jesus to the uh, Samaritan woman and says, quote, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
couldn't be any clearer than that. What an what a interesting insight that John brings up for us. What we begin to see is that the gospel begins to rub out lines that we would naturally draw in relation to other people groups or other uh, regions or other nations or other people, uh, uh, people like us or people not like us. The gospel begins to rub out some of those lines and helps us to begin to see God's love and the heart of grace that he has for the whole race of humanity. And this, I couldn't help but set my own heart as I was reading about the Samaritans and Philip going down into a region that would ha- have a very uh, difficult time as a Jew processing how, how is it possible that good news and this message of free grace goes to people who haven't lived or approached life with any sort of knowledge of God. They weren't born into the right family. They've never been taught about God. They don't have a proper understanding about God. Uh, there's actually uh, racial things that would go into this uh, description here uh, in this account, some history, some racial history and some tension that would be built into this. I couldn't help think about the events that has happened even this week in Atlanta to think about God's heart and God's desire for the, for the grace of God to be known amongst all people. And how we as Christians should be the first to uh, certainly be aware of the beautiful cornucopia of uh, the displays of God's um, image in in the whole heart of humanity and to to embrace people from all walks of life so that they might believe, grow, and hope in Jesus just as we we have been uh, given the gift of grace as well. The fight against racism in our country, but it's, it's not just in our country. This, is, this goes back a long time. This goes back to this time where there were racial tensions raised against who gets the grace of God and who doesn't. Who earns the grace of God by right or who earns the grace of God by some sort of merit or who earns the grace of God or deserves the grace of God simply by, by regionality. Who earns or has a, a, a foothold on the, the good things of God simply by the color of their skin? The, Christ, the Christian should be the first one to recognize that this free grace of God is absolutely for anyone who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here at the very beginning, we, we see that God's grace was meant and it was always intended for everybody. Well, how, you say, well, how, could we, how can we see this even from this passage? Well, to know that, that God's heart was and his mission was always for not just the Jews, but for literally the uttermost parts of the earth. Wherever the uttermost parts of the earth would be, that is where God wants his people as agents of his mission to go and to spread the good news. He really doesn't put any sort of qualifier on that mission. And what we begin to see is that this uh, fight against racism uh, and this desire for all people to hear the gospel flows from God's heart of love first and foremost. We see this, we, we read this a good bit in our uh, study on the, on the Trinity. God's heart and, and love for not just himself, but for others is expressed even in this uh, Trinitarian nature that we see God having. God's heart is for love, for others. And then he put this right into the imprint of his creation. We see this in not just his heart, but his design. In Genesis 2, we see that God uh, designed for for, for his people and really the people of the earth to reflect his image. And so he stamped his personal image on the whole of human race. 
It says, in, in men and women, I have created them perfectly in my image to reflect my glory, to reflect my heart. And then we certainly see this in God's whole redemption, what he chooses to fix in light of what sin has broken. And he says this in uh, Galatians 3.26. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, all of you are sons of God through faith. For as many of you have, uh, who were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The scope of God's grace is an all-encompassing scope. And we as a, the Christian people, we should be the first to recognize that these things that we would naturally draw lines in, these things that, uh, the way that sin would want us to draw these lines, we see the gospel erasing these lines in a beautiful way, and we open our heart like God opened his heart, and we see the design of his image stamped on all people, and God's desire for the redemption of all things through faith in Jesus. The scope of God's grace is for all, but also the scope of God's grace is for the sake of life, it's for the sake of life. Uh, notice there, I put a capital L. There's only a small way of kind of indicating the kind of life that God would design for us, not just uh, breath in our lungs and blood flowing through our hearts, but a kind of eternal life, a life that is given to us merely by his grace, certainly, but it kind of has this idea of just like the life that, that uh, and, and the power that raised Jesus from the dead and this free life that uh, Jesus has within himself, this is the life that he would have for us, and this is the scope of God's grace. God has given us his grace for the sake of this kind of life, and we see this in verse 7. Unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. Many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. This is God's design, this kind of eradication of sin or this undoing of all the bad that we in our sin naturally chose. This is a freedom from sin and its effects. The scope of God's grace is for all that ails us according to sin. And third, this is the scope of God's grace is for the sake of joy. In verse 8, I will never get this clicker right. I just never will. Verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. Much joy. It's hard to even realize what are, what are the things in our city that brings us much joy. Well, we experienced a little bit of that this week too. We put too much hope in our two-seated, beautiful gem of a basketball team and we did not experience much joy. You can imagine the free gift of grace to those who thought they were already out. There was no shot for them. They were already bounced out of life's tournament or God's tournament for them with not even a shot, not even a prayer, not even a last-ditch uh, buzzer beater. They had no reason to think that God would come to them. And yet, here they are in verse 8, experiencing the grace of God. And naturally, you can imagine, there would just be much joy in that city. Oh, that God would give us the kind of gospel advance in our city and in our hearts and in our homes, that there would be, and in our churches, that there would be much joy flooding our communities. But this is the scope of God's grace. He doesn't, he doesn't do this so there would just be like an inner fist bump. He does it so that a whole city would be uh, just, just filled with much, much joy. 
And so we kind of turn the page and we realize that here's a, here's a little story, a little insight to what happens when people start to maybe believe different things about the gospel or bring in their own sin to gospel realities and begin to tinker and uh, try to process this grace of God that is for all, uh, that is for the sake of life and for this kind of freedom of the heart and for their joy. They begin to try to put this into perspective into their own life. And you can imagine just like in our hearts, there's so much a struggle with it. There's so much, how do we bring all of these wonderful good realities into the dark parts of our life? Well, we get a really great glimpse of uh, a, a beautiful story here. And I say beautiful in the sense of, I don't know if it ends too well. Just so you know, I am working from the assumption and the understanding that Simon the magician's repentance is not a true repentance and that his faith in and of itself that uh, he expresses here is not salvific. And I, I've read multiple uh, uh, commentaries and opinions, and it's, there's some mixed view as to whether or not this is an ex- expression of uh, great faith or an expression of, uh, of not great faith. Um, I, I've come to the decision, I don't, I don't and we'll, I'll explain this as we go, I'm not convinced uh, that this is... Uh, a salvation merely banking all the blue chips on grace alone. Uh, and so for that reason, I'm, I'm working under the assumption uh, that, that Simon has, has too much. It's, it's, kind of like a, it's kind of like the rich young, young ruler when Jesus comes to him and says, uh, you know, you have, to, you have to fulfill the law. And he says, yes, I've done everything. And he's like, all right, go, go sell everything and give it to the poor. And he, like, it's like, yes, he's, there's something really good. There's something great. Uh, and he walks right up to the line and like the final blow of, of what it means to live like 100% by faith, he, he checks out and he walks away. I kind of think that's a very similar situation to, to what Simon is here. So if you don't have that, if you're like, no, I'm convinced the other way, that's fine. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know how much I'll, I'll push you on that. But I will say this. The point of this story is not to determine whether or not Simon is in heaven or hell. But the point of this story is to come to grips with God's grace, to come to grips with the scope of God's grace and where our hearts are in relation to it. In other words, are we banking every single blue chip that we have on the free gift of God or is there something, some some small little bit of wager or bet that we are holding back and placing on ourselves, on our own righteousness, on our own goodness, on our own fill-in-the-blank uh, are we holding something back or are we pushing everything that we have, all of our hopes on what Jesus has done freely for us? That to me is the, the point of this account. So whether or not we look at Simon's life and know the answer to his life, I, I almost think that's, a, that's totally irrelevant for us. I think this reflects on us to help us understand this whole thing is riding on the free gift of God in Jesus. So we'll go ahead and, and take a look. Uh, I think the first thing we need to realize about uh, Simon, by the way, I didn't know this. Uh, this is pretty cool. I'm not going to bring this up any other time, but I tried to find a way to sneak it in. Uh, do you guys know the, the word simony? Did you guys know that word? It's a word uh, for, if, for, for kind of parlaying religious stuff through money. So like uh, uh, if you buy religious stuff, uh, to try to get God's favor. So even like the, the uh, classic tale of like indulgences where you, you, know, you buy something and you try to get some sort of spiritual reward. It's called simony. 
It flows directly from this passage. I had no idea. I, I, learned, so I learned something this week, guys. It was great. You guys are like, you're such a nerd. Sorry, I get a little excited when I learn something like that. It's a little cool. Okay. Now you know. More you know. You'll thank me one day when, when Jeopardy comes on. You'll thank me. You'll look back to this moment. That's free. All right. We'll go and look at our, our friend Simon the Magician here. I think it's important for us to know, uh, first of all, that Simon had an overinflated view of himself. Simon had an overinflated view of himself. It's pretty amazing. As you read uh, verse 9 through verse 13, uh, you could even take a, a, a pen, as I've done, and you can just notate all the glowing terms that are surrounding Simon, or all the kind of glowing descriptions of the things that he, was, that he has done. Let's go ahead, go ahead and just look, and as, you, as I kind of emphasize, you can even just underline and just notate, notate how much underlining you're doing. There's a man named Simon, verse 9. He had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. He was really, he was really good, saying that he himself was somebody great, they all paid attention to him. The whole, the whole town paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Good on verse 13. Uh, eventually Simon would believe, but uh, at the end there, seeing signs and the great miracles that the apostles performed, uh, or that, that, that Philip performed, even he was amazed. You can see all these glowing terms, amazed, great, all, long time. You can imagine uh, the kind of narcissistic kind of feelings that a person in that position would, would get with all the oohs and the ahs and the crowds and the, you know, you're, you're literally just pulling fast ones over people's eyes all the time with your, with your magic, and you kind of have this mysterious um, crypticness to you. you. You kind of hold something in, in your hand that you're able to just, uh, you know, pass in front of people, and they're wondering, how does he do that? Wow, what a, what a, great, what a great man. And, but then in some sort of weird, almost cult-like uh, fashion, Luke describes that the people were even saying that somehow this was attached to God's power. This is the power of God that is called great, which in this area kind of even gives this indication. We don't necessarily know exactly what that, was, what that is, but Luke even seems to know that this, is, this kind of title is something pretty significant. He even capitalizes that, that G there. In Greek, there's this kind of emphasis to this title, even suggesting that there's some even messianic thing going on, that maybe this was some level of, man, is, is this the one? You can imagine sort of the, the narcissistic feeling that would go in Simon's mind. If, uh, if you guys don't know, I'm, I'm, one of the weird things about me is uh, I love me some true crime. And so as I, as I kind of picture this, I, there's a little bit of like pit in my stomach, a little bit, I kind of like, oh, because I, I know that some of like the worst people in history have this kind of like narcissism built in right? Where it's 
there's, there's cons and there's long cons and there's fakery and there's dupery and all of a sudden you've built this life and you've tried to sustain this life and your image is so big and you begin to believe your own press and now you're selling all these things to a group of people that if found out it's like a total house of cards. I watched a, uh, you, should, you should watch, I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, you should watch this one. I, I watched this past week. It's called Murder Among the Mormons. Do yourself a favor, go do it. And you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. This kind of like, narcissistic person that literally could almost do no wrong, this untouchable person who dupes so many people, who gets so many people to believe unbelievable things that you could hardly imagine. Even, in this case, not believe, swindling an entire religion, literally an entire religion, uh, into believing what he projected out to people. That, that kind of narcissistic approach and, and power, you would have to see this in Simon. I mean, this is, this is pretty amazing. A long time, he was amazing. All the people from the least to the greatest and some sort of a, this divine figure. This high-powered narcissism is hard to break. And this text would go on to describe something about money, but, and, and even some of the commentaries we're, we're pulling out, this is like, this is all about money. You know, Simon just wanted some money. He wanted a quick, a quick buck. I actually, as I'm reading this, I don't think this was as much about money as much as just feeding this character, feeding this, this pride, feeding this kind of narcissistic attitude of, I can do no wrong, I'm pretty much God. This addiction to self-power. Oh, how the church could do its own diagnosis of its own narcissism. Oh, church leaders who would prop themselves up as the voice or the authority. We would do well to, to take a step back and realize some of the projections that we are projecting amongst ourselves, even having great power and being able to influence people for a long time doesn't necessarily mark uh, uh, a godlike or a Christ-like uh, ministry. Sometimes it, can rep- sometimes it can represent the most narcissistic or the most satanic of, uh, of organizations. And it can be easier for religious people to repent of our failures, but it can be sometimes very difficult for us to repent of our own successes. And this is the danger that Simon was facing. It almost felt like he had nothing to confess that would be wrong, right? He's not, it doesn't seem like he's doing anything wrong. This great image that he reflected, but for Simon to actually admit that it was his successes that kept him would be very challenging. And we even begin to see that maybe some things were turning in his mind in verse 13, as even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. We start to see, holy cow, maybe Maybe this gospel can actually have power to take someone so dominated by his own self-image that he'll be able to, to flip his mind, to flip his heart. And we certainly, uh, certainly see some level of, uh, of reality that, that's, that that could be true. But no doubt, uh, Simon had his uh, own view of self that was overly inflated. Simon was in and of himself no closer to deity than you and I. And though we had some quick tricks, and though we had some level of trickery or befoolery, there's no reason to suggest that even the people of Samaria had any closer relationship with God than he did. 
And so we have here this depiction of him coming to Christ, and certainly we marvel and, and ooh and ah, and wow. He's even seeing the signs of Philip's performed, and even, even Simon the sorcerer was amazed, totally amazed at what God could do. As we get to verse 14, there's a little bit of a weird thing that I think it's worth just going over for just a brief moment here. Uh, in verse 14, the apostles uh, came to, uh, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard what was going on in Samaria, uh, they realized that there was some, some kind of uh, gap here, some sort of grace gap. Uh, they sent Peter and John because they realized that they had been baptized, but the Holy Spirit had not been given to this group of people. And that uh, would be a little bit of an interesting scenario, even as you're reading this and thinking about it, you're like, how's, wait, how is that possible? I thought, well, let's talk about it a little bit, um, just, just for a quick moment, because in chapter 2, ba- baptism uh, is clearly connected with the gift of the Spirit, and the gift of the Spirit is closely connected with baptism from, uh, from, from chapter 2, verse 38. If you can uh, remember uh, Peter's promise to the people, uh, repent every one of you and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says. There's a direct tie here, even in a promissory way. Once you're baptized, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. But then you have other passages in Acts that actually do some weird things as well. You have uh, actually in Acts chapter 10, verse 44 through 48, you have the, the Spirit actually is given before the gift of baptism is administered. So you have uh, this recognition of these people are spirit-filled people, uh, and then Peter eventually recognizes, here are a bunch of spirit-filled people. What's preventing them from, from being baptized? They should, they should be baptized. They have the same spirit we do. What's preventing them from being baptized? And you see some of the order uh, is a little off and maybe some, some gap. Uh, but then you have uh, even uh, in this passage here, you have the Spirit coming long after baptism. So they're baptized, and now they're just kind of waiting around for the Holy Spirit to show up in verses 14 through 17. Uh, and then again, this, this happens in a, it's a slightly different situation, but it uh, seems a little similar in Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. The Spirit is given after baptism. You say, like, well, why do, why do you bring all this up? I, number one, because it's a little weird, uh, and as you're reading it, you're like, what's happening there? Why, do, why does that happen? Um, there's not a lot of clarity, uh, so I will offer one kind of suggestion, then I'll offer a, a caution for us. Uh, the suggestion as to why this is happening, I actually think this has to do with uh, some level of the ministry of the apostles. Uh, obviously, it was significant enough for the apostles to recognize these people had been baptized, but they haven't been given the Spirit. So go ahead and send Peter and John, uh, and they will actually lay hands on these people, and then the Spirit will come. So there seems to be some level of attachment between the gift of the Spirit to these people in particular uh, and apostolic authority or apostolic succession, if I can say it this way. And this might make sense, right? As Philip's getting going in his ministry uh, and as the people of Samaria, I mean, this is probably one of the first open doors of, uh, you can see that the gospel spreading to to new regions. You would want to make sure that this would feel like some level of authoritative work going on. So the apostles go down there and they say, We'll lay hands on them, the Spirit will come, and you'll know this is the real deal. And so we see that going on. That's my, that's my best guess as to why this is happening. And then the caution I would give to us is, so maybe we don't have the perfect order of salvation. And just to know that, like, man, this thing, you know, we'd like to say 
salvation happens this way and only this way. Well, just go slow. Just be careful and under, un, understand that the Spirit himself blows where he wishes. We can see the Spirit's effects, but we in no way control the Holy Spirit. He does what he wants to do. So let's be slow. Let's be patient. Let's be understanding. Let's be generous. So when someone comes to you and offers their testimony of salvation and says, yeah, I believe in Christ, and, and maybe the Maybe the order doesn't align like we would normally read it. Let's just be slow. Let's just be cautious. Let's be gracious. Uh, certainly we can see like, ah, well, normally in, in chapter 2, we see that the Spirit and baptism line up pretty, pretty squarely, and faith lines up with that kind of a conversion experience. Well, just know the Spirit does what He does, and we do what we do. So keep sharing the gospel. Trust the Spirit to do the work, and don't get hung up on your exact understanding of, of uh, salvation history, all right? Little, as I was reading that, I was like, yeah, that's a little weird, but it's just a good note to just be like, a bunch of people agree and disagree on all sorts of stuff on, on this. Let's just be happy. These people received the Spirit. It was great. They understood the grace of God in Jesus. Beautiful. I'm thankful that by God's grace, so do I. All right, so Simon had an overinflated view of self, but also Simon had an underinflated view of God's grace. And we see this here as we begin to see Simon begin to struggle and to waffle on his faith. In verse 18, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Oh man. Offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. And this is the, this is the scary part that if you've watched enough true crime document, uh, documentaries on, on people and done enough research on, on criminals, you realize, oh, this is scary stuff. Uh, this person who would say, I, I want this same power also. Whatever it takes, I'll give you, I'll give you money. Whatever it is. And Peter's answer is a little stunning. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain gift by earning." thought you could obtain the gift of God with something you've, you've earned. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. I think that that's fairly significant here as we uh, think about Simon, you know, where Simon's at. Again, it ultimately doesn't matter, but I think this uh, understanding of, of Peter's accusation here, I think that's telling. Uh, I think we can draw a little bit of knowledge, and then to know that Peter never comes back around. I think there's some uh, some significance to that. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For, and this is incredible stuff, where I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You're trapped. You're trapped. You can't, you can't get out of your own mess. You can't seem to unpackage yourself from this kind of narcissistic attitude. You are in a repeat cycle of this ongoing sin and you can't break through. You are addicted to your own self, to your own merit, to your own power, to your own successes. Repent and pray that your iniquity, that the intent of your iniquity could be forgiven. And certainly it could be forgiven. Certainly uh, this repentance is offered as a way of like, get yourself out of this mess. See the grace of God. This, this isn't about merit. This isn't about what you can bring to the table. Understand this is a pure gift from God. He simply could not wrap his head around 
that God's grace is nothing but just a free gift. He couldn't wrap his mind around that. He couldn't let himself feel the the freedom to know that somebody else paid his way, to know that somebody else did the work, that somebody else's success was more necessary on his behalf than his own successes. He couldn't unwire his heart. He was still living by law-addicted selfishness. And so when it comes to understanding this gift of God, we too, we too must process what it means that God would come to us and offer to us free gift. It means we simply cannot have things already prepared for him. It means we must not just admit to failures, but we also must admit and lay down our successes. I just want to read for you a couple of my favorite authors in talking about this idea of of grace. A couple of of, uh, quotes here. Uh, An Anglican pastor, Paul Zoll, says, What is grace? Grace is a love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming to you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Grace is a love that has nothing to do with you, the beloved. It has everything to do with the lover. Grace is irrational in the sense that it has nothing to do with weights and measures. It has nothing to do with my intrinsic qualities or so-called gifts. It reflects a decision on the part of the giver, the one who loves in relation to the receiver, the one who is loved. Grace is one-way love. It's one way. In other words, it comes from the lover to the beloved. And it doesn't go back. It's, it's not based on any sort of reciprocity. It's, it's, not, it's not this kind of love with a love back. Grace is simply one way. And sure, does it transform? Boy, howdy it transforms. We'll see that next week. It absolutely transforms. Praise praise God it transforms. But grace does its work even before the transformation happens. It does it on its own. That is pure grace. As another author says, Tolly into Vision says, grace is an unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated person giver. I'll read that again. There's a lot of big U words. Grace is an unconditional acceptance given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. That is the reality of God's gift to us. And last one, Robert Cabin, grace is wildly irreligious stuff. It's wildly irreligious where we would seem to operate by merit or acceptance or deservedness or blessedness or lovability, grace actually does its work explicitly towards the opposite of that. That is the intent of grace, to go towards those. In fact, you can say grace is only grace unless it's towards the undeserved. If it's towards the deserved, it is no longer grace. That's what we simply call merit. Grace works only that way. And here Simon says, I have something to offer. I have something, number one, that I want, something that I feel like I need, that I even deserve, that I could operate with. 
I have something that would make sense for my life and I have some money in exchange for this. I can make this transaction happen. And Peter says, you don't understand the scope. You don't understand what God does. God doesn't work from something to something better. He doesn't work from good to great. He works from dead to alive. So until you are dead, until you realize that you are absolutely at the end of your rope, until you realize that you yourself have nothing to bring to God, until you realize that you yourself are the unworthy person to receive anything from God, until you get yourself there, then, then you can understand the free gift of God. But until you have something to offer, you will never understand grace until you still like you have something in your heart still beating in relation to you. You'll never understand the gift of God that is free. And his faux repentance demonstrates that he felt the prick of the law without seeing the joy of grace. I know what a scary situation to be in. Simon answered, pray for me. Peter says, no, you repent. You walk up to the Lord. You, you, you are being offered the free gift of God, not based on merit. You walk up to the Lord and you repent. You lay it all flat. You lay it all out before him and say, I need you. And he still seems to be holding something back. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He felt the prick of the law without seeing the joy of grace. I told you that the point of the story is that it reflects on us, even as Christian people, especially as Christian people, who come in week in, week out, negotiating grace with the Lord on a weekly basis, saying, I, I may not have lived up to your standard, but I do have something to offer I'm pretty good in this category of my life. I can do a little of exchange with you, God. Instead of coming fully, fully exposed to God, fully empty-handed to him and say, fill me, Lord. What often keeps us from Jesus is not the bad things we know we have, but the good things that we think we have. This is what keeps us from, from God. Not the bad things that we know we have, but the good things we think we have. Oh, that we would take even our successes and even the good things that we have and not seek to barter and trade with God to get some sort of even further power to boost our own narcissistic faith, but to simply come and say, I'm banking it all on what Jesus has done for me. I need what the miracle and the power that Jesus has. I don't need any more of my power and my capability and, and, and my uh, efficiency in my faith. I need simply Jesus and what he has done. And it's a beautiful invitation yet again to come, to come where you are, to come how you are, and to accept that God's grace comes and meets you where you are. Come to him, not on account of anything you've done, but simply on sheer grace. And it's beautiful because the Samaritans got it. The Samaritans got it. I'd like to somehow think that somehow the Samaritan woman was still kind of floating around. I mean, like, yep, I told you all. I told you all. 
I told you he's the real deal. He changed my life. He's transformed me. He told me everything I ever did. He laid me totally flat out. He knew exactly what was happening in my heart, and yet he still loved me. I bet she was hanging around and just kind of like, I told you all his grace was coming. I told you all. Y'all didn't listen to me. I told you he loves you. He loved me. And the Samaritans kept going in the preaching of the gospel to all the villages of the Samaritans down there in verse 5. See, I, I don't think we can do our mission. I don't, I don't actually think we can live on mission unless we ourselves are convinced that the grace of God is, is what it is. Sheer gift. I don't think we can truly live on mission the way God intended unless we are totally sold out that this thing rides 100% on his grace. 100%. And we see this testified here. And we'll see it testified in next week. So my friend, the beautiful thing is you might feel like you have something to bring, but that actually might, that actually might stop you from understanding Jesus. The beautiful thing is you get to lay down your failures and you get to lay down even your successes and come and drink of what Jesus has done. To come eat on what Jesus has done. To partake not of a little bit of him and a little bit of you, not even 99% him and 1% you, but to take of all of him and say, that's my hope. That's my treasure. It's all him. Let's pray. God, we come. And we come confessing, Father, we've blown it this week. We've absolutely blown it. Even when we think that we have done well, Father, certainly that was all of your grace to begin with. But Father, we have nothing to to come and barter with you. We have nothing that we can come and exchange with you for the grace and the power that we need. The power that we need has been freely given to us on account of what Jesus has done. His bloody cross and his empty tomb. We know that all of the things that we will experience in this life and the life to come that we would say is hopeful, that we would say is good news, only comes purely as a free gift, one way. So Father, I pray that you would continue to free us, free us from the burden of ourselves. Free us from the burden of even our own narcissistic faith that amazes people, that wows people, that tricks people. Father, free us from the delusion that if other people think we're pulling it off, then we too ourselves can think that we're pulling it off. Or even worse, that because we think that other people believe we're pulling it off, that somehow you believe that we're pulling it off. Father, I pray that we would lay everything at the feet of Jesus, that all the things that we would say are successes or uh, things that we have done, things that would boost our, uh, our own self-identity and self-worth, that we would lay it all at the feet of Jesus and fully just soak ourselves in the blood of Jesus that covers every sin, that sets us right with you, that gives us all of our righteousness, and that allows us to live out our pure identity as sons and daughters of God. Father, I pray that you would do that even this, this time here as we uh, take of you, take of your promises, that we would wash ourselves anew in the realities of all that you've done for us in your son. We pray these things through Christ.
Salvation, come on to me. You'll hear a sweet call.